This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Hello, Bruce. No, just follow Bruce. Make it interesting. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning in our part of worship where we look at your word and I pray, Lord, that you have and or would uh, generate in us a hunger for your word, a desire to learn more about you, a want that our hearts would change, that we would be more Christ-like. Father, I pray that you would drive your word deep into our hearts and use it to change us into a better image of Christ. So, Father, it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in the second half of John chapter 3, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles, where this morning we're going to see some, you're going to see a contrast of ambitions a contrast of ambitions. So as you're turning there, I thought I might ask, what are your ambitions? I didn't say resolutions. It's almost February. I know you guys gave up on those a long time ago. What are your ambitions? Are you one of those people who has the next 10 years of your life planned out? Or do you think it's an accomplishment if you get out of bed in the morning? What are your ambitions? What are you aiming for? When it comes to ambitions, I know that usually most of us have different ambitions for different spheres of our lives. We have ambitions at work and ambitions at school. We have financial ambitions. We have uh, spiritual ambitions. There's different kinds of ambitions. So maybe a better question would be, what governs your different ambitions? Since we have different ambitions, what governs your different ambitions? ambitions, what, whatever sphere of life it's in, what are, what are the principles that could answer the question, why is that your ambition? What are the principles that could answer the question, why are you headed in that direction? That's the question I want you to be able to answer this morning. How do you know you have the right ambitions? How do you know you have the right ambitions? How do you know you're headed in the right direction? Because at the beginning of our passage this morning, we're going to see the, the seductive nectar of unhealthy ambitions. Look at, look at verse 22 of John chapter 3. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet, put, yet, not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. 
So, so here's the, th- the scene. John, John the Baptist is doing his thing. He's baptizing. But somewhere nearby, we don't know exactly where, but somewhere nearby, Jesus has apparently introduced a little competition into the baptism market. So someone, John only calls them a Jew, but someone comes to John the Baptist's disciples and says something like, did you know Jesus set up shop right around the corner? And he's baptizing, and and there's a lot of people that are going to him. Which, Which verse 25 says brought up a discussion between this Jew and John the Baptist's disciples about whose baptism was better. That's what it means by purification. Whose baptism was better, John the, John the Baptist or, or, or Jesus's? After which, John the Baptist's disciples come running up to him in verse 26, and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, do you see what he's doing? He's baptizing. There's a lot of people going to him. Now, when they say, he who was with you, he who was with you. That's the, that's the Jewish way of saying, John, your boy is over there discipling. The one you introduced. The one you witnessed to. The one you allowed into your pulpit. Now he's over there doing what you're doing. There's a lot of people going to him. You know, it's amazing how unhealthy ambition cloaked in association can look like loyalty. It's amazing how unhealthy ambition cloaked in association can look like loyalty. Meaning, you don't have to be important if you can just hang out with people who are. It's the neighborhoods and the jobs and the schools and the clubs we make sure people know we belong to. It's the, it's the toys we make sure people know we own. It's the names we make sure to drop that betray our deep longing for attention and adoration. And in this chapter of the Gospel of John, the Baptist's disciples are concerned because they banked their ambitions on John the Baptist. And it looked like his stock was taking a hit by someone he introduced nonetheless. And it would be good to mention here just how important John the Baptist was at this time. It's hard to overstate his influence on, on, this, on this time period. He had massive influence over Judea. It's not an overstatement to say that John the Baptist was the single most significant public figure at this time outside of maybe elected officials. In fact, Josephus said John the Baptist had, quote, the great influence, close quotes, which is is a Latin phrase they used back then to describe that specific kind of sway that really charismatic people have over large populations or, or even nations. He said John the Baptist had that, which is why both religious and political authorities kept a real close eye on him. Because they knew he could lead a, a legitimate rebellion if he wanted. So before he was even 30 years old, he held incredible influence in Judea. And his disciples are, are concerned that, 
that influence might be waning. Which brings us to John the Baptist's response, beginning in verse 27. And, 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 it, and it, it's really interesting because his popularity makes his response all the more incredible. Look at verse 27. John answered, that's John the Baptist, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, don't you love it when the Bible makes tons of sense? It's like they come and tell John something, and he's like, the bridegroom and the bride, you know, and my joy is complete. And everything is from heaven. And his disciples are like, what in the world, dude? I've titled this sermon, How to Be an Ambitious Christian. How to be an ambitious Christian. Because what we're going to see in these verses is how to do that. How to be an ambitious Christian. John the Baptist is going to show us three principles which, if we allow them to govern our ambitions, like he did, will definitely be headed in the right direction. Look, at, look again at the first part of his response in verse 27, where, where he displays that an ambitious Christian is a content Christian. He says an ambitious Christian is a content Christian. John the Baptist says, A person cannot receive anything unless it comes from heaven. So John the Baptist hears that his ministry is being eclipsed by Jesus's, and what's his response? Oh dear, maybe I should go have a talk with him. Thanks for telling me. No, he basically says, I don't have control over what I do or don't have. I don't have control over how God blesses my ministry, meaning he knows the reach of his ministry, or anyone else's for that matter, is only as much as God ordains. In fact, look again at the irony that he points out in his disciples in verse 28. They come to him saying, John, do you re realize what's happening? Jesus is baptizing. He's doing your job. And, and, and John the Baptist is like, look, I already told you guys I ain't the Christ. Like, I get you're trying to protect my reputation, but you're not even listening to me. I already told you that I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who is to come. So, so John knows his ministry literally began in order to end. He knew that's why his ministry started. So he's content with whatever success God gives him. How about you? Does the knowledge that everything you have or don't, that everything you have or don't have comes from heaven, does that govern your ambitions? Does contentment govern your ambitions? I mean, right off the bat, doesn't that question sound off? Doesn't, doesn't contentment sound like the opposite of ambition? Like, I wouldn't have ambition if I was content. Then, then let me ask maybe a more productive question. 
how do you know? How do you know if your ambitions are governed by contentment? Because it's really easy as Christians to say, of course, I'm very content with what I have, and, and here's all the things that I want. So how do you know? Well, generally speaking, discontent is usually characterized by a, a restlessness, a, a hunger, a feeling like something's missing, a hole that needs to be filled. For example, several years ago, I was working two and three jobs as, as the church grew, and, and, a, and a real discontent began to take hold in my heart. I, I heard all the other pastors I hung out with talking about their days off and vacations and things like that. And, and you know me, I don't mind being honest. I was jealous. I was discontent. So my ambitions were being governed by that. My ambitions were being governed by my discontent. Anyway, I won't get into the details. Many of you have heard this story, but Shannon and I were at a conference where this preacher named John Anwanchukwa was preaching about contentment. And while what he was saying and how I felt was at war inside of me, I heard God say plain as day, whoever said you were only going to have one job? I didn't say that. That's just something you made up, man. Now, it took some time and some grace for my wife, but God changed my heart in an amazing way. How about you? How do you know if contentment is governing your ambition? Well, if you remember what Kim said last week, Paul actually told us, Philippians chapter 4, while he was thanking the Philippians for the gift that they had given him, he said in verses 11 through 13, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why? Because I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. In other words, I want you to notice that Paul's definition of contentment included need and hunger and want. And we know that. We, we know that passage and we agree with it. But the reason his definition of contentment included those things was because, listen, his contentment wasn't based on his circumstances. That's why he could be content. His contentment wasn't based on his circumstances. No, what Paul had learned was that as long as he had Jesus, he could be content because he had everything he needed. So, so let me just wrap this up and give you a simple little test to see if contentment is governing your ambitions. Simple little test. Make your ambitions for a, for a period of time. A year, two years, three years, something like that. But make your ambitions everywhere outside of church to not grow. To not advance. To not go. To not buy. Make it your ambition to stand still for a while. 
and see if it feels like something's missing. See if there's a restlessness inside of you or not. Because an ambitious Christian is a content Christian. But it's not just about contentment. Look at the second part of John's response in verse 29. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, to understand what John the Baptist means, you have to understand that the the best man back then had a much larger role in the Jewish wedding than simply trying to not give a lame speech at the reception. For example, he was the liaison between the bride and groom. He, He arranged the whole wedding. He's the one who sent out the invitations. He presided over the wedding feast. Much larger role, but more importantly, listen, in the Jewish culture, the best man was tasked with guarding the bride. Guarding the bride, including on the wedding night with keeping false lovers out of the bridal chamber until the groom arrived. So the bride would go to the bridal chamber. The, the, the best man would go and make sure that nobody else got in there until when he heard the groom's voice. He would let him in and leave rejoicing because his task was now complete. How perfectly does that describe John the Baptist's job? To, to, to prepare the bride, to guard the bride, to, to bring the bride and the groom together. On the other hand, how weird would it be to attend a wedding where the best man keeps trying to take the place of the groom? That would be really awkward. And, and, and even though I tell you to try to think about that, we don't have to try to think too hard because pastors do that all the time. In fact, a pastor once, I heard say once, some of you preachers, when you stand before God, Jesus is going to ask you just one question. What have you been doing with my wife? Meaning far too often, pastors want the bride of Christ to love them more than they love Jesus. But what John the Baptist is saying is this news about Jesus' ministry eclipsing his, he thinks it's awesome. He's like, what you guys are telling me is that Jesus is now interacting with. He's now baptizing. He's now teaching. He's now engaging with. He's now with his bride. You guys think that's a problem. I think that's awesome. This brings me joy because not only was that my job, but now my job is complete. I wonder... Do you know what your role is in this relationship called the church? John had a real good handle on what his role was. Do you know what yours is? I mean, when we talk about ambition, do you have any? Do you have any ambitions when it comes to your role here at church? I know some of you know your role very well. And I'll tell you something. One of the greatest joys that I have is watching your love for Christ fuel your joy in performing your role. I love that. But I also know there's some of you who don't know what your role is. And rather than chide you or guilt you, I'd prefer you simply listen to what John the Baptist is saying because look, he's saying, you're missing out on a lot of joy, man. That's what he's saying. Some serious fulfillment 
and satisfaction and happiness. It doesn't matter if it's cleaning or helping in Sunday school or up here preaching or, or counseling or whatever. It doesn't matter. When you figure out what Christ has called you and gifted you to do, I can't begin to describe the kind of joy you're going to experience. In fact, listen, it's a joy that's so powerful, it might just affect your ambitions in other places as well. Ambitious Christians are content Christians, and ambitious Christians are joyful Christians. But lastly, look at verse 30 where John the Baptist tells us that ambitious Christians are also humble Christians. Real simple, very familiar verse, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. I want to make a point of this because this is something that I think rightly gives Christians a bad name. It's something the world rightly sees in the church and hates. And before I point at you all, again, let me start with pastors because we're the worst. One thing I've come to hate is that pastors can be the most pretentious, self-absorbed people I know. In fact, one thing I hate is how territorial pastors are about their churches. They're like toddlers guarding their toy cars. Like, this is mine. Don't touch it. They get really angry if you take something. It drives me nuts. So that's, I mean, that's why I invite outside pastors in here to preach occasionally. And I especially love it when they preach better than I do. It's why we've done some joint things with other churches, and it's Awesome to see you guys jump in and embrace that and, and, and do it. Because that jealousy, that competitiveness is rampant in the church, and our culture rightly hates it. Now, to be clear, is it okay to have pride in your church? Absolutely. Absolutely that's okay. And, and is there also such a thing as good churches and bad churches? Absolutely. Like, I'm not just going to sit around and watch someone from the Mormon church or some other cult come in here and try to poach you guys. But if it's a gospel-preaching church where you can worship, awesome, awesome, go get it. Go get it. The point is this. Our ambitions in church as, as, as well as in life need to be governed by the same principle as John. How can I decrease so that Jesus can increase? Again, that sounds backwards. How, how can my ambition be to decrease? And, and, and that kind of humility, look, it's, it's one of the most unnatural and therefore difficult things to do. Listen to how A.W. Pink put it. He said it perfectly. He said, humility is not the result of direct cultivation. The more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain it. But if I am truly occupied with that one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into a better image of him. In other words, he's saying that humility is a passive result, not an active one. Because focusing on our own humility is still focusing on ourselves. It's like someone saying, I'm the most humble person I, th I know. However, if we focus on Jesus instead, if we focus on Him increasing, then we, can, we can't help but decrease. We can't help but grow in humility. 
When our ambitions, whether at work or at school or wherever, when our ambitions are governed by the principle of increasing and promoting and displaying Jesus Christ, then our ambitions will be governed, governed by humility. Ambitious Christians are content Christians. Ambitious Christians are joyful Christians. And ambitious Christians are humble Christians. No matter what sphere of life, if we'll allow those principles to govern our ambitions, I can promise you, you'll be headed in the right direction. Now, here's what I love about Scripture. It would be very easy. I might even say expected to just stop there. I mean, that's pretty practical. That's something you can walk out of here. You've got a neat little list of things to do. But we're not done yet, because that's not how John rolls. Let me show you what I mean. Look very closely at the end of verse 30 and the beginning of verse 31. Because what could slip past us if we're not careful is that verse 30 concludes John the Baptist's response. And verse 31 begins John the writer's interpretation. And, and, and remember, John the writer wrote this gospel at least sometime after 70 A.D., which means after several decades to, to reflect on these things, what we're going to see in these final verses is John the writer's commentary on what John the Baptist said. Meaning, yes, contentment and joy and humility should govern our ambitions, but John the writer wants to take what he knows now about Jesus after 40-plus years of growth and he wants to explode what John the Baptist said into real gospel application. What's even cooler is he wants to do this by mirroring John the Baptist's responses. For example, look at how verse 31 mirrors what John the Baptist said in verse 27. In verse 27, John the Baptist said, uh, he began his answer with the statement about heaven, what comes from heaven. But John says in verse 31... He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. In other words, what John the writer is saying is, I know John the Baptist said everything you have is from heaven, and that's true. But look, when it comes to contentment, when it comes to contentment, if everything you have is from heaven, then the one who is actually from heaven ought to get it all. That's the application. John the Baptist began with contentment, and now John the writer is saying, don't just be content with knowing what you have is from heaven. Be content with the one who is actually from heaven getting it all. Be content with that. He's pushing us to recognize that the only success that will ever be credited to our heavenly bank account is that which we deposit into Jesus Christ's. Meaning if your life's ambitions are not aimed at throwing your crowns at Jesus' feet, then we are usurping His work. Let me put it this way. To be a great Christian is to make your greatest ambition in every area of your life to put Jesus Christ on the throne, to glorify Him, to be content with making your work, your school, your finances, your friends, everything you own about increasing Him, about glorifying Him, 
let me, let me bring this out of the theoretical and, and lay it in your laps. What if Jesus wants the glory of your job? Meaning, what if he wants you to stay where you are in whatever position you're in underneath that mean boss that you have because that's where he's most glorified? Would you be content with that? Would you be content with giving him your job? Because that's where he's most glorified. Or, or what if Jesus wants the glory of your kids? I can attest to this. You did your best to parent obediently, but what if Jesus chooses not to change their hearts until they move out because he wants the glory of their salvation and not you? Would you be content with that? Because he who is from heaven ought to have it all. But also look how verse 32 through 34 mirrors verse 28. In verse 28, John the Baptist talked about his disciples listening to his witness. John the writer says in verse 32, he bears witness to what, he's talking about Jesus, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, John the writer is saying, yes, listen to the Baptist's testimony. Listen to what John the Baptist says. But look, Jesus is testifying about what he's seen in heaven. He's testifying to what he knows about God from personal experience. Meaning, John the Baptist testifies to what he's seen here on earth. Jesus testifies that God is truly who he says he is. Which means, listen, you want some joy in your life? You re really, do you want some joy in your life? You want some purpose? Do you want a clear target at which to aim your ambitions? Then listen, Cedar Springs Church. Live your life like everything Jesus said about God is true. If you want some joy in your life, live your life like everything Jesus said about God is true. Live your life like he will never leave you or forsake you. Live your life like you don't need to be anxious about anything. Live your life like he works all things together for the good of those who loves him. Live your life like nothing can separate you from, your, from his love. Live your life like he's given you his spirit without measure. Because that's the testimony of Jesus Christ. Lastly, look at how verse 35 mirrors verse 29. In verse 29, John the Baptist talked about his relationship to the groom. But in verse 35, John says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In other words, John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus and His bride is, is one thing. But God's relationship with Jesus and His bride, well, that's a whole other thing. Listen, if you want humility to, to govern your ambition, then just think about this for a minute. John the Baptist introduced the bride to Jesus. That was his job. But the father is the one who's going to give the bride away. John introduced the bride, but the father's the one who's going to give him all things, and all things includes you and I. Think about what that means. That means on that glorious day when you get to heaven, that day when you and I are eternally wed to our Savior, God the Father is going to proudly give us away to Jesus Christ. 
You want some humility? Listen, he's going to be beaming with pride. God is at our purity and our holiness and our worthiness to marry Jesus Christ because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That's what God the Father thinks about Jesus. That's his relationship with him. You want some humility? Think about what Jesus did on the cross so that God the Father is going to be so excited to give you to Jesus in the end. If you want humility to govern your ambitions, ruminate on that for a while. Because as usual, the last thing John has for us in verse 36, I'll sum it up, is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe? Do you believe Jesus Christ is who he says he is? Do you believe that he ought to have it all because he's the one who's from heaven? Do you believe everything he said about God is true? And do you believe one day God will give you an eye to him in righteousness and splendor? Because the person who believes that is a Christian who has their ambitions pointed in the right direction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the truth that we see and hear of our Savior. Father, I pray that you would sink into our hearts a desire to give him everything. I pray that you would give us a desire to enjoy it. Father, I pray that you would give us a, a humility that understands the, the depths to which Christ has sunk to save us and the heights to which he's going to raise us. Father, we praise you and we worship you and we thank you for the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would grow in us uh, a longing, a yearning, for our ambitions to point to Him. Father, it's in His name that I pray. Amen.